responding to him. Thanks for being a part. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14, we're going to be going through uh, verses 26 to 40. We are picking back up the second half of 1 Corinthians 14. We've been in a series in, in Paul's letter to the church in Corinthians, and we've gone through Paul's encouragement about eagerly desiring the spiritual gifts, and then Paul had a little excursus where he says, but do it in the context of love, because they weren't being loving, and so he wants them to desire the spiritual gifts, but do it in love is, is the message for the church. And then um, the last time we were in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul was giving instructions about what does it look like in, in the exercise that that the spiritual gifts are to be intelligible. And so today, we're going to be covering the second half of that. So turn your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 14, 26 to 40. This is God's holy inspired word today. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there only be two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it's shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. Let's pray. Father, we need your help. God, we acknowledge this is a difficult passage. Lord, this is things that are hard to understand. But thank you, Lord, that you feed us in your word with, with all kinds of things. And you're, you give us deep things to chew on, too. Lord, thank you for the food you give to us so, through your word. I pray that you would enable us to, to comprehend, to understand your word, to apply it to our lives, Lord, and to respond to your word. Lord, I pray that you would fill me and, and all of us with your Holy Spirit because this is only possible by your spirit. So, Lord, give me grace to speak and give grace to all of us to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, our family, we, most of you know we have six kids, and we, we like to get together for mealtimes. And, and most of the time, we have meals together. And our meals together end up being very long. If you've visited our house before, you've been with our family, you'll realize that our mealtimes are not quick. We sit around the table, and it lasts an hour or more. It's not that we have a clock and time it. It's just we get talking a lot. We we like to talk, and mealtimes are a time of fellowship. They're a time to, to make connections, to, to catch up with each other, to hear from each other, to, to share stories about your day, to, to learn from each other, because all of us learn different things throughout the day, so typically the conversation will go like, what did you learn today? And then we'll hear from each person, so we get a chance to learn from each other. But, but because there's so many of us, and because we all tend to like to talk, um, it can be a little confusing at times. 
It can be difficult, but it's even more difficult when somebody comes in from the outside and they join us, or they become a part of our time together. We, uh, a few weeks back, we had some, a couple stay with us, and they've been friends for a while, but they haven't been around our family with all of our kids for a long time, and I think the dinner was overwhelming for them. Most of our meal times were overwhelming for them. They seemed like shell-shocked. They didn't know how to react. They didn't know how to respond. It was so much conversation, so much talking, and they couldn't track because, you know, I've had one kid sharing something here, one kid sharing something here, and, then, and so eventually we had to say, you know what, guys, hey, wait a minute. Like, we can see this, like, shock and consternation on their faces, and, and often, at times, they didn't seem to be tracking. They didn't seem to be tracking with the conversation, and Julie and I would kind of chuckle afterwards because they're like, they had no clue what we are talking about, did they? And, then, and, and they, would, they would think we said things that we hadn't. We said completely different things. And I realized that they just couldn't handle the pace. They're both older adults. They're both used to being on their own, having quiet, prolonged, thoughtful conversations. Well, that's, that's not really our mealtimes. Prolonged, yes, but not quiet. And so they were, they were a little shocked, and it was hard to track. And, and so what we did, we thought, you know, this isn't enjoyable for them. So we said, okay, you know, why don't, why don't we just, like, just only one of you shared at a time. So not everybody got to say everything. Not everybody got to talk. Um, and and we, it was a little slower than normal. We slowed things down because we loved them. We were trying to be kind to them. Because otherwise it would have been very confusing and unloving if we kept that pace up for them. Well, well, Paul here, he is giving a similar kind of instruction to the church because what was happening is their, their meetings, their gatherings, they were, they were confusing. Everyone was talking all at the same time. When, when he begins the passage and he says, you all have a prophecy, you all have a hymn, you all have an interpretation, you all have a tongue, that's not a commendation. Because what was happening is their, their meetings, they were confusing. It was, it was very difficult to track and to figure out what in the world the people were misunderstanding things. It's important to see this chapter is not a standalone. Back, way back in, in chapter 11, 17, I think we have this on the overheads for you. He, he, he began to give different instructions to the church in 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen. 17. If you, can you put that scripture up there if you have it? Do you have it, by the way? Okay, I, don't, I didn't hear that, but that's okay. So go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen. 17. Uh, he says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. What, what a statement, right? When they, when they were gathering together as a church, it wasn't for the better, but for the worse. He says, when you come together, it's not good. In the following instructions, and these following instructions are continuing because he's using the same language there. He says, when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. And then later on in, in verse 18 of chapter 11, he says, when you come together, he uses the same phrase again. When you come together as a church, I hear the divisions among you. Then, then later on in verse 20 of chapter 11, he says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's supper you're eating, you're being selfish. And so now he says, when you come together, everybody's sharing. And so he says, let all be done. For building up. And the inference is that, that's not building up. When everyone is sharing something all over the place, when you come together, everybody's sharing. He says, no, let all be done for building up. People were not submitting to one another of love. They weren't deferring to each other. They weren't doing things decently and in order. And so in this context, Paul says, hey, I really want you to eagerly desire spiritual gifts, but let me help you with what it's going to look like. Not only does it look intelligible, and that's the first half of chapter 14, but it also needs to be orderly because if it's not 
No one's going to understand what's going on. It's going to be confusing, chaotic. It's not going to build up. Let all things be done for building up. And so the main, the main idea that he's trying to get across that I believe that the Lord would have for us today is that, that we're to exercise the spiritual gifts in an orderly manner so that the church is built up. We're to exercise the spiritual gifts. He's not discouraging the exercise of spiritual gifts here. And in fact, at the end of the chapter, he reiterates that again. At the beginning of chapter 14, he says, eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially prophecy. And then he talks about being intelligible, first half. Now he talks about being orderly. And then he's going to end it again with encouraging. So he's not discouraging the spiritual gifts because they were a mess in the church. No, instead he's giving guidelines. He wants them to exercise the spiritual gifts in an orderly way so that it builds the church up. So that everybody can understand what's going on and so it's not chaos in their meetings. So that their meetings don't do more harm than good. Building up the body, it's been a theme for the Apostle Paul throughout this letter. And he began in chapter 8, in 8.1, he says, Now concerning foods offered up to idols, he says, We know that all of us possess knowledge. He said, But that knowledge, it puffs up. But love builds up. And so he began to reiterate the fact that instead of competing, they need to be building each other up in love. In chapter 10, 24, he says, everything's lawful, but not everything builds up. But I want you to not just seek the, your own good, but the good of your neighbor. Then in the beginning of chapter 14, he says, in, in verse 3 and 4, he says, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. And so Paul here, he's trying to encourage the exercise of spiritual gifts in an orderly way, but so that the church is actually built up. And, and that means something for us. It means that the, the spiritual gifts build us up. Don't be afraid of the spiritual gifts. Pursue, eagerly desire spiritual gifts because that's how we're built up. And so he says in, in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 14, he says, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. That's why he discourages public tongues without an interpretation, both before and in this passage. He, he discourages because other person is not built up if they don't understand. It's not intelligible. And then now he gives them specific guidelines about how, what does it look like to build each other up through exercising tongues and prophecy. And all these guidelines have to do with building up. And the first point we should look at is that confusion doesn't build up. Clarity does. Confusion doesn't build up. Clarity does. You know, imagine for a minute if everyone began to just spout out and share what they thought was important this morning when we gathered. It'd be pretty confusing, wouldn't it? It'd be pretty chaotic if, if you know, Bob, he shares a, a passage of scripture and while he's doing that, someone says, I really feel like the Lord would encourage people who are downcast and then someone else shares something else and then you have six or seven or eight or nine or 10 or 20 or 30 of you all sharing at once. It would, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to track. And so Paul's bringing guidelines here because he doesn't want the church to be confused. He wants them to have clarity, clarity over confusion. And so he says, if anybody speaks in a tongue, he gives some guidelines. Don't let everybody talk all at once. When, it, when you all come together, everybody's talking. He says, don't do that. It, it, when you get together, if somebody has a tongue, then let one of you or two of you or maybe at most three and then each of you take turns. Don't do it at the same time. But only if there's an interpretation because otherwise it'll be confusing and it doesn't build up. And so he's, he's limiting their exercise of the spiritual gifts 
in order to the common good. See, the exercise of spiritual gifts is not about selfishness or self-promotion. It's about, hey, how do we love each other in the exercise of these gifts? What's our aim? Our aim is to build each other up. So, you know, not everybody has to share everything all at once. Just like our dinner time when we had that couple staying with us. We, we, you know, not everybody got to say everything that they wanted to say because we were trying to love them. So sometimes you just didn't say stuff. Or you're like, I'm going to summarize instead of sharing a 20-minute recap of my dream which happens sometimes. And sometimes i got to admit I zone out. <laughs> so he tells them, I want you to limit your spiritual gifts here, not, not to limit God, but to say, because you know, the goal here is to build up, to encourage, to edify the church. That's the whole point of the spiritual gifts. And if there's, there's nobody interpreting, then let him keep it to himself. It's fine. You know, go home, talk in your private prayer language. That is perfectly legitimate to have a, a private Prayer language of tongues, speaking to yourself and to God, but, but don't do that publicly unless there's somebody to interpret. Keep silent. And he, and he uses that, that, that word several times. It doesn't just apply to tongues. It tries to, hey, to tongues, to, to prophecy, there's going to be time when you, you keep silent because you love people. Um, with prophecy, there's going to be time when you keep silent because you love people. And then later, he's going to talk to women about how and when they keep silent out of love. So he has a, he has a rubric here. It's because he wants to edify and not confuse. He says some same guidelines to the prophets. He says, if, if anybody has a prophecy, or if, he says, let two or three prophets speak. Not everybody all at once, and let the others weigh what's said. Now, now we're not going to cover this morning what, what New Testament prophecy is, because we've already touched on that in previous messages. But, but just to remind you, this, the kind of prophecy he's writing about, it's not in scripturation. This is not people speaking the scripture. You see, the Old Testament prophets, they spoke. It was God's very word. The, the New Testament equivalent of that, with that same authority, is the apostles. They have an apostolic authority. They, they speak at the level of, of those who wrote scripture in the Old Testament. So this, what he's talking about here is not on the same level of authoritative Old Testament prophecy. Um, he, he's not adding, this is not a kind of prophecy that adds to any new progressive revelation. This isn't, this isn't inscripturation. It's not infallible either. And in fact, if you remember back in, in chapter 13, verse 9, he wrote, he says, we know in part, we prophesy in part. Because for now, and he explained, until the perfect comes, We'll only see in a mirror dimly, but then we'll see face to face. Right now, we see dimly. We prophesy in part. It's a dim conveyance of what we believe God is saying and a current word from the Lord for today, for his people, for their uplifting and encouragement. But here, we also see this kind of prophecy. It's not infallible because he says you're to weigh it. You're to weigh it. It's like putting it on a balance of scales, and that, that original language has a broad spectrum of meaning, but, but really it has this context of distinguishing between what's good and, and, and not good, between what was genuine or not, between sorting and evaluating what's beneficial. So he's saying that's what we're to do with this kind of New Testament prophecy, because not everything in it is good. But don't despise it. And in fact, that's what he wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, don't despise prophecies because their, their prophecies, they were recognizing these are not perfect, these are, not, these are fallible. So, hey, if they're confusing, if not everything is good, then shouldn't we just throw them out? And so, no, Paul says, don't despise prophecies, but test or evaluate, weigh everything. Hold fast what is good. Not everything is going to be. So prophecy today is to be evaluated, it's to be weighed, it's to be tested against what's in Scripture. 
And how do we know that? Because later, Paul actually says, if you don't agree with what I'm saying, then you're disagreeing with Scripture, because what I'm saying is Scripture. And by the way, New Testament prophecy, it's in subjection to apostolic authority. And that's how we know as well that this is not the same as Old Testament prophecy. One would never weigh an authoritative prophecy in, in the Old Testament in the same way, because to do so would be to question God's word. And yet Paul says, I want you to weigh prophecy. In the Old Testament, it was only a question of whether somebody was a true or false prophet. And if somebody claimed to be speaking in, in the name of God, and yet they shared things that God did not tell them to give, then they would be considered a false prophet. And sometimes they could be considered worthy of death. It's not the kind of weighing that Paul expects in the context of the church today. We're not, we're not to do that. We're not to weigh in the, in, in, the, in the essence of calling someone a false prophet. No, this is a different context. These are all believers that he's talking to. We're to weigh what they say, not to evaluate them as a false prophet or, or not. There's different scriptures that speak to evaluating whether somebody's truly a believer or not. But he's assuming here that in the church, those who are sharing are true believers. And we're to weigh what they say to see what's good or not and hold on to what's good. Let go of what's not. We're to weigh it, sift it. And it's important to note that he says that, that, that everybody is a part of that. The others who are listening are to be a part of that weighing. That means that you if, you, if you hear a word spoken from the Lord, including, script, including my teaching, you're to weigh it against Scripture. Including when somebody comes up and they share it to our ministry microphone and they share something, you're to weigh it. You're to think, okay, is this, is this in accordance with Scripture? Even teaching, when I teach, you're to do that with teaching as well. So how much more so this prophecy that he's talking about weighing? You know, they, they might have thought that, oh my goodness, it's tragic if a prophet doesn't get to share something or somebody's prophecy and they don't get to share that because that would be awful that God's words would fall. And Paul says, no, it's, they aren't infallible. And so because of that, we're not worried about if not everything gets shared or, if, or, or say if you have something you feel like the Lord's impressed upon, you don't get to share it, then, then God has not failed. It's not tragic that a prophet's words might not be heard. Because look what he says in verse 30. He says, if a revelation, if somebody's sharing something, a revelation is, or something, God reveals something to someone else, he says, then, then let the first person just stop talking. Be quiet. Be silent. You would never silence the infallible prophetic words of God in the Old Testament. And Paul, he's encouraging that with New Covenant prophecy. Somebody else is speaking a prophecy. He says, you know, then the first person can be silent. It's okay. You don't have to keep talking. Even if they believe God has revealed something that's applicable to the church, it's not necessary to share everything. You're not going to thwart God's purposes and plans. And then he says, for you all. Now, he's not talking about every member of the congregation at all times, that you're all going to line up and everybody in the congregation is going to prophesy. No, we can't be talking about that because he's already said two are at the most three. But this all here, he's, he's, he's talking about all, all men and women, young and old, all of you can prophesy. But do it taking turns, two or three because, because it, it's a way that we can learn from God and be encouraged. The Corinthians might have objected. They might have said, you know, well, I have to share a prophecy or else I'll, I'll be disobeying God. And Paul says, no, order in the church is more important because God's a God of order. So disorder isn't the way of love. Order is. That's the second thing that we want to see. Disorder isn't the way of love. Order is. Now, when you, when you think of the word order, I think stodgy. You don't know if you ever think that way. I think staid and stodgy and, and I'm, I'm going to be ordered and so I'll have no fun, no joy. But you know what? God's a God of order and God's pretty amazing. God's pretty spectacular. And, and God's order, it brings peace. He's not a God of confusion, but he's a God of, of peace. And, and his order, it brings joy. 
The fact that, that the sun rises and the sun sets, and, and I can count on that every day. The fact that we have seasons and order, oh man, that, that brings a peace and stability to our lives and in joy. And so there's joy in order. Don't confuse order with a lack of joy or a lack of enjoyment. No, actually, order is, is how we can enjoy God more. So disorder isn't the way of love. Order is. Because he's been talking about, in, in chapter 13, the, the way of love. Exercise the spiritual gifts, but do it in a loving way. And so now he's unpacking. What does it look like? Well, do it in an orderly way. Love people through the spiritual gifts by doing it orderly. And here's, some, here's the thing that would have shocked the Corinthians. He says, the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. They might have felt like, I've got to share this because I just, I just feel compelled and I have to share this because I feel like the Holy Spirit's making me. Well, he says, no, that's not going to be the case. The Holy Spirit's not going to override your will. And by the way, um, this is not an ecstatic utterance where you can't help but talk. No, he says, no, the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. You're not possessed. It's not uncontrolled speech. You don't have to share it. And everybody did that, it'd be very confusing. But you know what? God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. He brings order. And then you, you see this in the, in the context of order, in this discussion about weighing prophecy. And then as they weigh prophecy, they're actually supposed to evaluate the prophecy. And then what was probably occurring in that church is, as they weighed prophecy, they would publicly comment on that prophecy. And so leaders in the church, they would, they would comment on the prophecy or talk about how we apply this prophecy or, or you know what, hey, this is positive or this is not good. And they would make comments on that. So, so that, that response to prophecy, it kind of became like a teaching moment. And so because of that, Paul, he brings some clarity here. And he says, well, not only two or three and then keep silent or uh, two or three prophecies and then keep silent, but also, hey, um, I think you're misunderstanding things here. God's order is seen not just in how many people share and that there must be an interpretation, but it's also seen in him saying the, the, the gifts of the Spirit don't override the order between men and women that God has created, this good order. And, and so he says, he, he says, for God's not of God of confusion, but of peace. And then look in verse, end of verse 33, beginning of 34, he says, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. It's the same kind of thing he's been talking about because of order. He's been talking about if you have a tongue and you don't have interpretation, keep silent. If you have a prophecy, but somebody else gets up to speak, be silent. Now he talks to the women. He says, now the women should keep silent in churches. But what is he talking about here? Because didn't Paul mention earlier in Corinthians that women actually pray and prophesy? Well, the answer is yes. In 1 Corinthians eleven five, I think we have that for you. 1 Corinthians 11.5, he, he gives an example in the context of the orderly church services. He gives an example and he says, every wife who prays or prophesies, now this is in the context of their public meetings, he was expecting women to pray and prophesy. But what he's correcting is not that they prayed or prophesied, but what he's correcting is that they're doing that with their heads uncovered. And we already talked about that. Go back and listen to that passage. No, you don't have to wear hats. Um, go back and listen to that message from a few months ago. But what, he's, what he was doing is he's, he's assuming this is going to take place, that women are going to pray and prophesy, but the way they did it needed to be submissive and orderly. He's kind of picking that same theme up again here. You know, back then, they were, they were culturally dishonoring their, their head, their husbands, by appearing to be unmarried and unsubmissive, not wearing a head covering, because in that culture, in that day, when they wore a head covering, it indicated they were married. When they took it off, it indicated they were unmarried. And so he's, he's not correcting that they prayed and prophesied. He's just correcting how they did it. Do it in submission to the authority, their God-given authority, 
Their husbands have authority over the wives. So he's not correcting them. And he also later encourages the whole church. And he says, you can all prophesy. So he's not saying that women can't speak. But what is he saying? Well, if you think about it, in Acts 2, 16, the apostle Peter, he got up and he was explaining why there's a bunch of women and men both They were all either speaking in tongues and declaring the great things of God. And so they were right in the book of Acts, right as as soon as Pentecost happened, the Holy Spirit fell, flames of fire fell on each person and they began to speak in other languages and they began to share the things of God. And so so Peter is explaining what's happening. And so in Acts 2.16, he says, this is what was uttered to the prophet Joel and in the last days it shall be, God declares that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. So Paul certainly can't be contradicting Peter or himself just in in Paul's mind when he was dictating this letter most likely. It was probably only 20 minutes earlier with chapter 11 even though for us it was a couple months ago. So he's he's not kind of lost his mind. He's contradicting himself. Paul was not that dumb. And given that fact that he probably read the letter again before it was sent out, it's not conflicting. So, so we have to ask, what does he mean? Well, well, Paul clearly wasn't objecting to women prophesying because he, he says that they pray and they prophesy. Peter declared that this is what will happen in the last days, is that men and women, sons and daughters, even young men, young women will prophesy. And then in Acts 21, Luke, the same Luke, by the way, who accompanied Paul on all of his missionary journeys, and in Acts 21 was Luke and Paul together. In Acts 21.8, he's just describing what, what the church was like. And he says, you know, the house of Philip the evangelist is where he went to stay. And he, he was one of the seven, one of the seven deacons. And, and, he, and they stayed with him. And he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. They prophesied. So he's not saying that women can't speak generally. But I think the key is found in the context. Because the context is essential. Whenever you, you have a difficult passage of scripture you need to look at, what is the context here? What is he really saying? What, is it, what does it mean? We're, we're never to read a scripture and then apply our current hermeneutic backwards and say, okay, you know, based on today and what we think is reasonable, we're going to reread scripture. We're not permitted to do that, and we don't do that here. But we do be careful and say, how do, we, how do we look at scripture and who it was written to in that day and that time? How would they have heard it? What was the context? And so I believe that the context is it'll become clear if you see that not only does he begin by talking about what does it look like for things to be done orderly in prophecy and tongues, but then he talks about how to carry prophecy and tongues out, how to weigh a prophecy, and in that day when they weigh a prophecy, they would, they would be expected to speak either encouraging or correcting or commending or maybe asking questions about that prophecy publicly. And so it's in that context where he says, well, because Paul hasn't lost his mind and all of a sudden just jumped to another topic, Okay. Because sometimes this passage on women not speaking in the church, it's pulled completely out of context, and it's just that passage alone is preached on, and that's not helpful. As if women cannot talk at all in public at all. And that's not what he's saying, because he's saying women will pray and prophesy in chapter 11. But here, he's talking about in the context of, of weighing prophecy. How do we know that? Well, right after he talks about that, look down. He says, if anybody's spiritual or prophet, he should acknowledge these things. And then he says, in verse 39, so... A summation of everything he's been talking about. So eagerly desire, earnestly desire to prophesy. Don't speak in tongues. Don't forget to speak in tongues. But all things should be done decently in order. What he's talking about is decent 
or proper order. And so what he's talking about here with women not speaking is, is that women aren't, aren't to publicly weigh. They, 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 yes, they're to weigh those things, to consider, is this God's word or not? But they're not to speak and correct those things because that's exercising authority over the men in the church. And, and they might have also been asking questions too. And so, you know, if they think, okay, well, I'm not supposed to exercise authority. I'm not supposed to teach in the church. But maybe if I just kind of ask some questions, but you know how insidious a question can be. Is that really God's word? Is that really in accordance with Scripture? So Paul says, that's why he tells them, he says, well, no, if you have questions, don't, don't do that. Not only don't, don't speak or preach or teach or exercise authority in public, but, but don't ask those kind of questions. If you, if you have questions, go home and ask them. So what he's, what he's sharing here is that the woman's not to speak in the context of passing judgment over prophecy or applying it in a teaching context like they would have in that church because it'd be to exercise authority over men, which Paul clearly prohibits. And it's the same kind of language that we see in 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy 2, he says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I don't permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. She's to remain quiet. And so, so Paul is giving the same kind of exhortation here. He says, don't, don't be unsubmissive. This is, this is not teaching. You're not to publicly condemn or weigh a prophecy and give your adjudication on it. You're not to ask questions about it because it, you, we're not to, we're, you're, you're to follow God's good order that he's given in creation. Good order in the home. He says that it would be shameful for a woman to speak judgment or pass judgment and speak out because it's an exercise of authority over men. So you can imagine that, that woman, I said, well, what about this command not to teach? I can, I can start asking questions. She says, no, do that at home. They can keep silent, just like the tongue speakers in verse 28, or just like those who had a prophecy and could keep silent, so can women. It's, a, it's, an, it's an issue of loving and being submissive to God. It's not about complete and utter silence. Just like people who were speaking in tongues, it wasn't complete and utter silence at all times he was talking about when he says, let them be silent. And then in the same context, he says, let a prophet be silent. It doesn't mean always, at all times. He says, women be silent. Well, it's the same thing in this context. He wants them to be silent. Now, it might be difficult for you to hear these kinds of instructions. It was probably very difficult for the Corinthian church to hear these instructions. That's why Paul, Paul is heading that off of the past. He knows they're not going to like this. He knows they're not going to be comfortable with it. And so he, he knows that what he's sharing here might be offensive the idea that not everyone could prophesy, that not everyone could speak in tongues, and that, that women couldn't question what was going on with other men's prophecies, that they weren't to adjudicate or to give public teaching about that, that might not have sat well. And maybe the Corinthian believer would incline to dispute all these things because they're saying, well, we're spiritual. Well, we're prophets. Aren't we just like the Old Testament prophets? And Paul says, no way. No way. Prophecy is not authoritative. God's word is. New Testament prophecy, probably is how I should have caveated that one. New Testament of, of prophecy isn't authoritative. God's word is. How do I know? Where am I getting that from? Well, look in verse 36. He asks some rhetorical questions here. He says, you know, or, or was it from you that the word of God came? He, he, the answer there is no. And he is self-consciously saying that the word of God is coming from him. He says, are you the only one that understands God's word? You're the only one that's reached? The answer is clearly no. You he says, you aren't writing God's words. You're not, God's word hasn't 
just reached you. You don't, you don't have, you're not the place of authority. And then he corrects them again. He says in verse 37, if anybody thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, if you're truly spiritual, you truly are hearing from God, God's truly revealing something to you, he says, then you better acknowledge the things I'm writing are a command from the Lord. They are things in Scripture that are difficult, that are hard. But God's order is good. His commands are good. And so he's, he's telling them to be in submission to God's word. And by the way, he's saying that his words that he's writing here are a command from the Lord. In case you ever wondered whether Paul claimed to be writing scripture, well, he's doing it right here. And he says, no matter how impressive or spiritual you think you are, if you're really spiritual or prophetic, you're going to acknowledge what I'm saying is true, or you won't be acknowledged. You're illegitimate. If you don't recognize the legitimacy of this being commanded of the Lord, then you're illegitimate. If you ignore what I say, then you're ignorant. That's kind of the, the, the gist is what he's saying here. But in all of this, here's the crazy thing. If, if, if we had an abuse of any spiritual gift in the church, I would be inclined to say, stop it. If someone here is misusing their gifts of the Spirit to dominate, to control others, to try to be more impressive or uh, you know, showing off, I would just tell them, stop it. But that would be wrong. Paul doesn't say stop exercising the gifts. He just gives them a context to exercise them in. He adjusts them. He doesn't say stop doing it. And, and in fact, he actually sums it all up by encouraging it. What he was saying is that orderly gifts are to be eagerly desired. Orderly spiritual gifts are to be eagerly desired. He says, so, the summation of all of these, this order here is not to say stop doing it, be afraid when things get a little weird or uncomfortable or when things are awkward or different, we don't complete, quite understand it all. No, he doesn't say stop doing it. He says, so, in summary, I still want you to like to do this. I still want you to eagerly desire this. Don't be afraid of it. Hey, these are the, the God-giving guardrails that kind of keep us from error to keep us from having problems. We wait against scripture. Not too many people talk. There's an authority that's in submission to God's word. And so these are the guardrails so we don't have to be afraid of the spiritual gifts. We're to eagerly desire them knowing that God's given us some boundaries and some guardrails that keep us safe just like when we're driving on a mountain road. And if there's no guardrails, it could be very scary. But with the guardrail, you're like, yeah, it's okay. I'm not gonna go off the road. I might swerve a little bit, but I'm not going off the road. And so he says, orderly gifts are to be eagerly desired. Orderly gifts are to be eagerly desired. He says, earnestly desire. The question for us, church, is do you earnestly desire or are you afraid? Are you afraid of spiritual gifts? Are you cautious about spiritual gifts? You, so, you see, this, this whole idea of being open but cautious to spiritual gifts, you would never apply that to any other gifts of God. I'm open to the gift of marriage, but I'm really cautious about it. I'm open to the gift of teaching, but I'm not really going to embrace it. I'm, I'm open to God's gifts, but I'm, I'm not going to embrace God's gifts. You see, the gifts of the Spirit are actually gifts and manifestations of the Spirit. And to be merely open to the gifts is contrary to what God commands. God doesn't say, hey, be okay with stuff. No. When, when you know, I, I wouldn't just be open to the command to not fornicate, right? I'm, I'm open to that. You better be more than open, Okay. <laughs> When God commands things in Scripture, you better be more than open to it. When he says don't commit adultery, you better be more than open to that command. You better be obeying that command. When he gives all kinds of commands in Scripture, when he says love your neighbor as Christ, as, as, as Christ loves you, as Christ loves the church, then as Christ gave his life, don't just be open to loving people. I'm open to that. No, be pursuing those commands. And so same with here. I eagerly desire 
to prophesy. Now, he doesn't give the same emphasis to, to tongues. He says, don't forbid it. But eagerly desire to prophesy. But do it in a way that's proper, respectful, and orderly, not confusing. He says, because all things should be done decently and in order. We, we want to we obey that scripture because we want to have some, some good guardrails not to keep, keep the gifts of the Spirit from operating, but so that we can run in that lane as, as, as well as we can. And so we, we have guardrails in, in the church. Now, what does it look like for us? What is it, how do we put into place what Paul's talking about here? We have different contexts for that. So like on a Sunday morning, we have a, we have a microphone at the front. You might be wondering, like you've been visiting here for a while, wh- why do they have a microphone at the front for? And why is there some guy like Aaron or Matt or somebody, one of the elders that are standing here, and they, people come up and talk to them first and do that? Because it's, it's a means by which we can have the congregation participate in a way that we don't believe that we're the only ones to hear from the Lord, that the Holy Spirit speaks to each and every member of the church. The Holy Spirit encourages and edifies and exhorts the church through the body. And so we would encourage you if, you, if you believe there's a scripture that God has given to you, or if you feel like there's a timely word of encouragement from the Lord for today, or you just have something that you believe that, that you want to share to encourage the church, then we'd encourage you, hey, come on up in the middle of our, our now, now, I'm, now, now I'm teaching, because that would be disorderly, it would be confusing, but during our worship service, during our song sets, come up to, you see either Aaron or me typically as an elder, we'll be sitting or standing there and and share those. So instead of afterwards, we just do it a little differently. Instead of afterwards correcting or afterwards adjusting a word, which would be a little more embarrassing in our context today. And by the way, I don't think people would like that if we, if we said everybody can share something, but afterwards we're going to talk about what we think of, it, of that was good. Well, our, our way of evaluating a way, and we just do that ahead of time. So, um, so that somebody comes up and shares, then, then Aaron and I away. Is this, is this timely? Is this from God? Is this for right now? Or is this for the whole church? It's just, you know what? That's a great word, but I don't, I don't know if this is for the whole church. It might be for somebody in specific. Why don't you pray about that and go back and hold on to that? Or maybe it's just for you, and that's really good, but I don't think it's for a whole church. Or there might be all kinds of reasons, but, or you know what? There's already been two people shared, and I don't think we should have any more right now. Or, hey, there's, there's three people up here, but two people have said the same thing, so I don't think we need to repeat the same thing. So but we'd encourage you, if you have, have a word, if you're a member of the church, and why we say we're restricted members because we don't know everybody and it's hard to know maturity, whether somebody's a believer or not. And so we limit that to, to members of the church. If you're a member of the church, come on up. We'd love to hear from you. We want to encourage you to, to do that. We encourage you to eagerly desire because we want the whole body to be built up and edified. Now, that's not words of correction. That's, that's, we're not going to let those loose, okay? Because the point is encouraging, edifying, building up, exhorting, that's the purpose of the spiritual gifts in the context of the church gathered. So it's not corrective words. It's also not words with, that speak with an authority that, that, that Scripture doesn't give. So when somebody, if they were to come up and say, thus says the Lord, I would say, no, no, we don't speak that way here. That's only Scripture that speaks that way. But we can say, I believe the Lord has, has given me something to share that might encourage the church. Or I, or I feel like the Lord's impressed upon me this idea, and that's good, and that can be encouraging. Maybe, maybe not ready for that, though. Maybe not ready to share those things where there's a different context as well. Maybe... When you get together with somebody, you can pray, Lord, would you give me a word of encouragement for the person I'm meeting for lunch today? Would you give me a scripture to encourage them with? Put something in my heart. and You'd be surprised. I've got to work to encourage people as you are sensitive and listening for the Lord to speak. Or in small group, if you're praying, and I encourage you to do this, actually prepare ahead of time for small group. Like, I, I don't know about you, but I forget what I preach about by Wednesday. So I'm guessing you do too, okay? That's normal, but you know what I do? I go back and look at my own notes before I go to care group. You should do the same thing. 
Take notes, by the way, on Sunday mornings. Take notes in some form. And if for some reason you cannot take notes, go back and listen to it again so that you can learn and, and, and say, Lord, now how would you have it applies to my life? And then what can I share that would be encouraging to the group? Lord, how have you encouraged me? Or maybe there's a scripture or something you call to mind. And share that in your small group. Now in your small group, there's gonna be more weighing, but that's a safe place to do that because these are your friends. Those are your church family. But I encourage you to do that and, and come with those words. But don't, don't think that it's authoritative or that you have to share those things. But say, how can I love people? How can I do this, domi- not domineeringly, but how can I do this to serve, to love people? We want to do things decently and in order, but we don't want to discourage the spiritual gifts. We want to encourage them. The reason for the decently in order is protection. It's, it's guidelines, it's guardrails, so that you can run, so that the Holy Spirit can be in operation and move in a way that is current for us today. So why, why even encourage the gift of prophecy? Why encourage that the church pursues and eagerly desires prophecy? You ever wonder about that? Paul, why didn't you just discourage it? Because you know how encouraging it is to know that God sees your circumstances, he sees your situation, and he's applying his word to you personally. That's so encouraging. It's encouraging to know that, that God is near, that his spirit didn't stop working when, when Christ was resurrected, but his spirit continues to be in operation to apply his words in a timely way today. That's so encouraging to know that, that God sees you, he knows you, that, that he wants you to hear from him, and he expects you to hear from him. So we want to encourage prophecy. We want to encourage people to, to step out in faith. Now, we don't want to overvalue prophecy. It's not the same as God's word, but you know what? We do want to not make the mistake of undervaluing it either. We want to value the fact that God continues to speak in ways that he hears and sees and knows our situations and he is near. And why do we encourage the gift of prophecy? Because we want people to walk out from here saying, God is in this place. How exciting that would be. So as you close, just want to say, what do we do? I want you to pray. I want you to confront yourself. Am I earnestly designing spiritual gifts, especially prophecy? Ask God for those gifts. Ask God for evidence that he's actively involved in our life and he cares about us. It's a means by which we can experience his nearness. Don't you want to experience God's nearness even more? You can say amen. Because I know I do. I want want to experience God's nearness on a regular basis. There's something unique that happens when the church gathers. And part of that is this gift of prophecy. let's, Let's pursue this, eagerly desire this. Amen? All right, let's pray and have the band come up and we'll close the song. Father, I pray that you would stir up within us a desire for more of you. That we would seek you in your word, first and foremost, primarily in and through your written word. Lord, and I pray, though, you would apply your word to our hearts and minds in a fresh way. God, I pray that you would reveal how your word applies to us, Lord, that you would reveal that you are near. And so, Lord, we pray for this this New Testament gift of prophecy to, to be in operation and to increase in our church. God, help us all love you and each other more through that. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.